a, I haven't shared a, the de- debunking of Santa Claus in quite a while. Uh, you kids that, uh, you know, maybe this is still a part of your Christmas tradition, you can cover your ears here. But just to save you, share with you some scientific calculations. And when these calculations were made, approximately, there were approximately 2 billion uh, children in the world, those under 18 years of age. Santa doesn't visit them all, of course. That's not how the story goes. Obviously, he wouldn't worry about maybe um, the uh, cultures where he is not spoken of. So just in the cultures where Santa is prominent, the average uh, census for those cultures is that there's about 3.5 children per household, presuming that at least one of these one, there's one good child in each of these houses, Santa must have to visit about 108 million children over the course of about 31 hours. Say, why 31 hours? Well, you would assume that he follows the rotation of the earth uh, and uh, follows the, so that's to make the most of um, the, the time differences in time zones and such. So this works out over those 31 hours if he's going to be visiting 108 homes to about 967.7 visits per second. 967.7 homes per second. That would mean that each household with a good child, Santa has around one one one-thousandth of a second to park the sleigh, hop out, jump down the chimney, fill the stockings, distribute the remaining presents under the tree, eat whatever snacks have been left for him, get back up the chimney, jump in the sleigh, and get to the next house. To get these 108 million homes, Santa's sleigh would have to move approximately 650 miles per second. Mind you, that's 3,000 times the speed of light. The payload of the sleigh is another interesting element here. Assuming that each child gets nothing more than a medium-sized Lego set, which maybe be about two pounds, the sleigh must carry 500,000 tons, not counting Santa himself. On land, the conventional reindeer can pull about 300 pounds. In air, even granting that a flying reindeer could pull 10 times the normal amount, the job can't be done with a mere eight or nine of them. Santa would need 360,000 reindeer to pull this amount of weight. This increases the payload, not counting the weight of the sleigh, another 54,000 tons for all of these reindeer. 600,000 tons traveling at 650 miles per second creates enormous air resistance, and this would heat up the reindeer in the same fashion of a spacecraft re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. The lead pair of reindeer would absorb 14.3 quintillion joules of energy per second each. In short, they would burst into flames almost instantaneously, exposing the reindeer behind them and creating a deafening sonic boom in their wake. The entire reindeer team would be vaporized within 4.2 thousandths of a second. Not that it matters, however, since Santa, as a result of accelerating from a dead stop to 650 miles per second in .001 seconds, would be subjected to centrifugal forces of 17,500 Gs. 
a 250-pound Santa, which let's just admit that's a little slim, <laughs> would be pinned to the back of the sleigh by 4,315,000 pounds of force, instantaneously crushing him into a quivering blob of pink goo. So the only way for Santa to reach the prominent cities, as well as Nowheresville, he'd have to be God, basically. And I don't know if, you, if you've watched Home Alone 2, which is one of our you know, favorite Christmas movies of the season, but uh, Kevin McAllister's cousin actually makes a statement when someone says, Santa doesn't visit hotel rooms, he says, of course he does, he's omnipresent. So that kid had figured out. In order for Santa to do what he must do, according to the myth, he would have to be God. So Santa would have to be God in order to accomplish what the story claims. Similarly, our Savior has to be God in order to accomplish being the Messiah that would die for our sins. But God took the time to explain how he must be God over thousands of years prior to his coming. Different than Santa where you come up with a story and then you figure, okay, well, the answer is he's omnipresent. That's kind of uh, reverse engineering there. God made fulfilled prophecies over thousands of years prior in order to give clues to who Jesus really is. And as we look at how God foretold the birth of his son, we should embrace God's greatest plan. The, the coming of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the fame of Jesus is God's greatest plan. That's saying a lot when you're talking about God. We read in Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So why Bethlehem? Bethlehem was known as the city of David. David being a king of Israel. And why did Bethlehem come to be called the city of David? It was a part of God's greatest plan that a small town of insignificance would become ground zero for the pivotal moment in history. Not in church history, but in all of history, of our world, of the universe. We read about how it first became the city of David back in 1 Samuel 16. This is when God had told Samuel, his prophet, to go and anoint the next king of Israel. And what was dangerous about this was that King Saul the, was the present king of Israel. So we read in 1 Samuel 16, Then Samuel said to Jesse, this being David's dad, Are all these sons here? Are all of your sons here? Because God had directed Samuel to this family. And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him, being David, he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. 
God took an insignificant young man from an insignificant town and anointed him to be the next king. And Bethlehem went from being the hometown of a nobody to the hometown of the future king who was a part of God's greatest plan. In our next passage, from when David, we see David finally took his throne after the death of King Saul, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 5, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall, shepherd, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. And you shall be prince over Israel. God intended that as king, David would be a better shepherd than the king that he replaced. God's greatest plan involved changing Bethlehem into the hometown of God's, of Israel's greatest king. And later in his reign, David, God graced David with a special promise, a covenant that God was making with him. We can read in 2 Samuel 7 where God tells David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the, the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, God tells David. He's telling him that this descendant of David would be coronated as king and would never die or be removed. And God's people knew that this could only be fulfilled by God's Savior, his Messiah, and they waited expectantly for his coming. So God's greatest plan would involve a descendant of David who would shepherd God's people as his promised reign would be without end. In coming a little closer to the birth of Jesus, we find Joseph engaged to Mary. Mary's been told that she'll bear Jesus, the Messiah. Joseph is relieved of his feelings of hurt and fear when the angel tells him of Mary's miraculously, miraculous pregnancy. So she didn't step out on Joseph. This is a work of God. But Joseph and Mary are in Nazareth. How is God going to fix this so that his greatest plan of his eternal king can be accomplished of him being born in the city of David in Bethlehem. You probably know that this, how the story goes. In, in Luke 2 we read, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration with, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. In other words, we got a historical event here that you can check. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. God causes the entire Roman world to make, is to, he, 
he causes the entire Roman world to have to return to the town of their birth, to their hometowns, in order to get Joseph and Mary and Jesus' birth to the city of David. But hey, the salvation of mankind is worth it. And all of this is to get the major players in God's greatest plan to the city of God's, Israel's greatest king for the birth of God's eternal savior king. You know, we set aside smaller plans for grander ones all the time, right? We have a long lost family member show up to our house and we don't say, I'll be with you for a second, I just need to finish my crossword puzzle. We set it aside. If a person gives us final four tickets and we don't say, ah, I got a haircut planned for that day. We set it aside because it's, it's more important. And without even the entire Roman world knowing it, God is saying, this is more important. Whatever plans you have, you're setting them aside so that I can fulfill what I said I would do, and that is that my Messiah, my son, will be born in the city of David. Just as God rearranged the plans of the world for what was most important, we should hope that God will disrupt our plans so that we might celebrate Jesus. Anybody had their plans disrupted yet this Christmas season? Congratulations. God is telling you something. Or we should look also for the opportunity to interject the eternal into the mundane by sharing the hope of Christmas with others. If you want to sound really smart, you can tell them, C.S. Lewis said, the Son of God became man so that man might become sons and daughters of God. All right, if you want to sound really smart, tell them that. So Joseph and Mary are newlyweds headed back to Joseph's hometown what was Bethlehem like at that time? Its population was about half the population of Newmarket. About 300 people. It was probably, uh, it was located just five miles south of Jerusalem. Does that sound familiar? We're about five miles south of Crawfordsville right now. It's in the region of Ephrathah. And that term means fruitfulness. Sometime after Jesus is born, wise men from the east show up in Jerusalem, the royal place of power, right? They're in Jerusalem. And we see from Matthew 2 something, I, the second thing I want to challenge you with, to embrace God's greatest shepherd. Read Matthew 2, verses 1 through 6. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men come from the east, and they came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Regarding the religious climate of that day, their messianic expectations, the expectations of the coming Messiah, they were rising among 
the Jews. And that expectation was always also rising in Herod. And he was not about to welcome another king. He was reigning over Judea, which includes both Jerusalem and Bethlehem. It's kind of like saying Union Township. He had no interest in a promised king taking his throne. So Herod asks where this little upstart might be born according to the the scriptures. We read in verse 5 of Matthew 2, They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and this is referring to the prophet Micah, which we have read here, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Notice here how Matthew relays the prophecy of Micah with a slight difference. You know what we read from Micah 5.2. That coming Messiah is described as one who is to be the ruler in Israel. And Matthew relays that, quotes the prophecy saying a ruler who will shepherd my people. This is quite the distinction. They are stating this to the present ruler, a ruthless king who wants to get rid of, if he can, this coming king that the prophecies are foretelling. And this is the king in contrast to Herod that is going to shepherd the people of Israel. And he's just been told it's just five miles away. So God's greatest plan involves his greatest shepherd. It would involve the descendant of David that would shepherd God's people as David did. The little town of Nowheresville is going to get another major upgrade in reputation. The Messiah will be born there. And that's what we remember it as. Can you tell me who lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Well, I'm speaking of Charleston, West Virginia. There's a White House there. Do you have that picture? That's the White House that lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Charleston, West Virginia. You might have been thinking I was talking about 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, D.C., That would be, both of them. The White House is at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, D.C. We know it as the White House because of who lives there. Bethlehem became a significant place because of who was born there. God's perfect shepherd king. And we should upgrade our Christmas celebration in the same way because of who it celebrates. The little town of Nowheresville is revered because of who came from there. David, but more importantly, David's descendant. The one who will take David's throne and sit there and never be removed from it. I encourage you to bring Jesus into your Christmas celebration and make it about him. Spend time talking about what makes him special, why we give gifts. It's because God gave the greatest gift 
that could ever be given in the person of Jesus. Spend time talking about how it is that Jesus is God's greatest gift ever from the greatest gift giver. Or you can also say something smart like, well, C.S. Lewis says, the Son of God became man so that man might become sons of God. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for the fun of Christmas. We thank you, Lord God, for the, for the unity that we feel with, with even people that we disagree with as we, as we hum the carols of the season, as we whistle them through parking lots and, and shopping centers. But Lord, we also pray for those who do not know personally the significance of this season. We pray, Lord God, that that you would make much of Jesus and that you would use us to do that. We pray, Lord God, that you would allow for us to be a part of glorifying Christ in the minds of, of the children that are so excited about the gifts. Lord, let us be excited about your gift also. Loosen our tongues so that we might share that you gave the greatest gift in your son Jesus, making an even greater gift available, and that's relationship with you through Jesus, our Savior. Lord God, I pray that you would be glorified by this Christmas season like never before that you would allow for a movement of your Holy Spirit that brings us back to what it truly means to be a part of your greatest plan, celebrating your greatest shepherd. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.